Words are powerful. They cause fear, confusion, and anger, or they can create shared understanding. But when words are delivered by a powerful political leader, their impact can inspire us to great action. And it is to those words that we turn now. In the power of words. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. What is different? What is special? I, Barbara Jordan, am a keynote speaker. This is the meaning of our liberty and our creed, why men and women and children of every race and every faith can join in celebration across this magnificent mall, and why a man whose father less than 60 years ago might not have been served at a local restaurant can now stand before you to take a most sacred oath. Hi, this is Alan Chartok. Welcome to The Power of Words, our series that follows American history through some of the most memorable and inspiring political speeches of our time. We continue today with Barbara Jordan's 1976 keynote address to the Democratic National Convention. Joining us today to help set the scene and analyze the speech is Professor Albany Common Council member and activist Barbara Smith. Barbara Smith is serving her second term on the Albany Common Council, representing the Fourth Ward, and is a public service professor at the School of Social Welfare at the University at Albany. Smith has been a leader in establishing the field of black women's studies in the United States and has been committed to working for economic, racial, and social justice throughout her life. She is focused upon addressing violence and increasing educational opportunity for youth and families, especially in economically challenged neighborhoods. She's the founder of the Albany Family Education Alliance and has served as co-convener of SUNY's Albany Promise, a cradle-to-college-to-career educational initiative. Smith has taught English, African-American literature, black women writers, and black women's studies at a number of institutions since the early 1970s, most recently at the College of St. Rose. In 2005, she was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. A native of Cleveland, Ohio, Smith has been a resident of Albany since 1984 and a homeowner in Arbor Hill since 1987. Welcome, Barbara Smith. Thank you so much, Ellen. I'm so happy to be here today. And we are very happy to have you. So, first of all, tell us about Barbara Jordan. Tell us a little bit about what you see. We're going to hear this wonderful speech later on. But what you see of her as a leader, as somebody who meant a lot to a lot of people. Well, she was phenomenal. I was so aware of her impact at the time. And talking about her speech today, I got into my time machine and thought about, well, what was I doing back in 76 and also during the Watergate era? And she made such an incredible difference being in the position that she was. As you know, she was the first African-American woman to be uh, elected to Congress from the Deep South. And that was in the 1960s or early 70s. But she also was the first black woman to serve in the state Senate in Texas before that. And she was just one of a kind. I mean, her depth, her intellectual depth, and what we will soon hear, her oratorical skills, she was just phenomenal. And then, of course, the role that she played in Watergate was unprecedented because I was thinking about that term moral compass. She was the moral compass of the nation. There were others, of course, who served that same function. But because of her oratorical and rhetorical skills, 
there was just a way that she put it that it was just like everything stops. You got to listen to that voice. How important was she to the um, concept that black people had reached that point in the United States when there was nothing that was going to stop uh, a, a certain kind of equality? Let's remember that 1976 was a long time ago uh, compared to um, compared to where we are now with a black president of the United States. Right. Well, that's one of the things I did to prepare for our conversation today. I said, I'm not just going to read Barbara Jordan's speech. Let me read Obama's 2004 speech and to uh, kind of look at them together and compare because these are benchmark speeches. And her speech was very much a product of its time. But there are concepts in the speeches that are very similar. And what I would say characterizes them as far as being similar is that they both talk about the need for diversity and to accept diversity in the United States in order to fulfill the founders' initial vision of a democratic society. So that's what they have in common. But as far as like how they go about presenting those ideas, it's quite different. And I think we can talk perhaps about that later if you wish. Well, let's talk about it right now. What are some of the differences? Well, the thing with Barbara Jordan's speech, she starts with herself. She talks about how remarkable it is historically for a Barbara Jordan. She refers to herself as a Barbara Jordan to be speaking as a keynote speaker at this Democratic National Convention. So she is self-referential for about a paragraph or two. And she's talking about the historical moment of this has never happened before and we should really mark it. Obama, on the other hand, he does the same thing, but he does it throughout. He's self-referential throughout. It's like a string of stories, a string of vignettes. And after Barbara Jordan talks about herself and how remarkable it is that she is standing in that place at that moment, she doesn't really talk about herself following that introduction. She talks about big ideas and concepts it's on a very different level. It's like what a professor might say about what's going on in the United States, what should be going on. But as I said, Obama, on the other hand, tells story after story about different people, different members of his family. He tells a lot more detail, and that's how he strings it together. But as I said, the themes are very similar. Was the nation ready for it when Barbara Jordan spoke as opposed to when Barack Obama spoke. I don't think that the nation is ready today to entertain the idea that people of color, and I'm not just talking about African Americans, I'm talking about various groups of us who are not of European heritage living here. I don't think they're ready today to deal with our capacity, our leadership, our normalness, if that's a word, within the American project. We see signs of that still. Well, we have a black president of the United States. Right, but racism is not over. <laughs> I would say. <laughs> so, I mean, we can't confuse those things. Having a black president, and I was here in the studio the day after he was elected, actually, back in 2008, talking about this very thing. It is a historical benchmark, a watershed, but it doesn't mean that the systematic institutionalized oppression, which is white supremacy in this country, toppled the same day. There are lots of things that go on with this administration in relationship to race, some of which we see, some of which we do not see. But one of the things that I understand is that they get more threats, and I'm talking about the whole family, including the beautiful girls and his beautiful wife, our first lady, there are more threats aimed at them threats of violence and, of course, the end result of violence, which is the worst result of violence, which is death. They get more of those than any other president has ever gotten. Well, I certainly believe that, and I was scared to death from the day that Barack Obama became president and before. 
So I think it's extraordinary that they are safe so far. Right. You really have to worry about them. Right. I was worried about his acceptance speech for the nomination in Denver because sure. it was such a big outdoor space. Yeah. I was like, you know, everybody was, else is watching and enjoying it. I'm thinking, oh, please, 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 please let it turn out all right. You know? But I'll tell you one thing. It took hours to get into that right, stadium. Right, indeed. indeed. They, everybody was searched. <laughs> right. Well, people like you and me who lived through the assassinations of the 1960s, it's sure. not an abstraction for us. No, not at all. We know that that can happen. And we know how many people who have serious mental illness are out there. Yes, indeed. We see that every day, too. So I wanted to ask you this, and that is, if you trace the development of the American psyche from the time Barbara Jordan gives the speech to the election of Barack Obama, what happened? Well, I think, you know, this was 1976. The civil rights movement was less than a decade past its height. So all of the gains, all of the demands of the civil rights era were in the process of being implemented during the 1970s. It was a post-civil rights era. And this speech reflects where we were as a country. I mean, I, we could go line by line. We're not going to. But the thing is, there's certain things that are said that are very much a product, I think, of the historical period in which the speech is given. When you look at Obama's 2004 speech, it reflects where the country has gotten to during that period. But it's an incremental process. It's, it wasn't built in a day, and it's not going to be dismantled in a day. So it's like they're products of their times, but this was huge. It was huge to see a black woman in particular in such a position of prominence and leadership. Now, she was chosen to be the keynoter for a reason. What do you think that reason was? Well, one of the things that I read when I was doing my research is that she was being considered as a running mate for Jimmy Carter. And that's fascinating given where we are now, particularly when we look at that first Obama-Clinton matchup in the 2008 election. So we're still waiting to have a woman on the ticket. We've had a woman on the ticket. We haven't had one go to the position of either vice president or president. So that's what was in the works. But as I said, it turned out instead of her being on the ticket, I, I don't think that the country could even have dealt with that at that time because she probably was the best qualified person to be on that ticket. But I suspect yeah. that there will never be another election, particularly within the Democratic Party selection process, in which there won't be serious consideration to one of the two principles being African-American on the ticket. Because we do know some interesting things. We do know, for whatever it's worth, that African-Americans voted in great numbers, great enough to elect the Democrats and Barack Obama in the last in presidential the election. 2012 one. And I keep thinking to myself, well, considering that Barbara Jordan you know, started this in 76 and was a keynoter there, I keep thinking... Who could be on the Democratic ticket next time, assuming Hillary Clinton is going to be the candidate, assuming that, and it may not be so, um, then who would be the vice presidential candidate? And I keep coming up with Deval Patrick, mm -hmm. um, who is extraordinarily well-spoken, oh, yes. extraordinarily accomplished, doesn't come from the same state, which is prohibited by the by the Constitution, but it's awfully close in terms of blue states. Oh, yeah, Northeast. I mean, yeah. well, Massachusetts, I think, is generally considered to be the bluest state. Yes, mm -hmm. bluest state, which keeps electing Republican governors. <laughs> um, but what I'm fascinated with is the sort of intellectual timeline that goes from the 76 keynote. She was chosen for a reason. She was chosen because there had to be a motivational reason 
to get black people out to vote. And that I'm sure that was part of what was being thought of here and choosing somebody of great intellect who could do that. Right, indeed. Well, that's the kind of political nuts and bolts of it, the strategy as opposed to the vision or the idealism of it, if you see what I'm saying. So you're thinking like a political scientist about what was the purpose of her speaking over and above what was the meaning? Because I'm focusing on, I think, the meaning and what it meant to me as another African-American woman to see her do that, if you see what I'm saying. I wasn't involved in electoral politics at that time, so I would not necessarily have thought they're doing that because they want me to come out and vote. But they were doing it because they wanted (laughs) you to come out and vote. I was going to vote anyway. (laughs) Well, but I want to ask you, uh, you're a woman, you're African-American. We have Hillary Clinton the next time as a possibility. Barack Obama the last time facing off against Clinton. I mean, it's a very personal question, but can you tell us something about how you reacted to that matchup? Well, I was more excited about Obama becoming the nominee than I was about Hillary. And I don't want to get necessarily into my political beliefs because I have spent a lot of time to the left of electoral politics. And I still consider myself to be a part of the left, if you see what I'm saying. So that's not exactly our subject today. But the thing is that as far as who I wish to see get the nomination during that cycle, it was Barack Obama. And at that time, I was not a huge Hillary fan. So I think since she's been the um, Secretary of State, and just because of where we are in the country, I have somewhat different feelings about Hillary now. I am excited about the possibility or maybe the probability of her becoming the nominee for 2016. But the thing is, in 2008, I was really excited about the possibility of a black presidential nominee and a black president. So if Barbara Jordan had lived, this is one of those what-if questions, if Barbara Jordan had lived, do you think there would have been any difference in our politics? I think they would have been much more intelligent. (laughs) See, that's one of the things I got from being reintroduced to her brilliance by reading the speech, and soon we'll be listening to the speech. It's like, wow, the one was just so brilliant. And she was a scholar. And as you and I know, we don't have a lot of people who are academics or scholarly in the business, the sausage-making business of politics. And I think it would just have given a level of gravitas, a level of intellect, a level of depth. She was teaching political ethics. I mean, what a perfect subject for her. But just think about if she had been able to weigh in during the Reagan years, for example. Well, I guess she was around for the Reagan years, but if she had been able to just take it right up to the present day. So how would you differentiate? I have to be very careful about how I ask this question, because there are black rhetoricians who speak in the old style. You know, Jesse Jackson is a fabulous speaker. But Barack Obama is not Jesse Jackson in any way. He's a guy of great intellect who, as is Jesse, but who, you know, does not resort to the old style of doing things. You describe yourself as a leftist. Then what's the difference between a a Jesse Jackson and a Barbara Jordan? Where was Barbara Jordan in that rhetorical style? She wasn't Barack Obama, but she certainly wasn't Jesse Jackson in terms of the way in which she delivered her remarks. She was an intellect. But she still had some of the sense of, of well, almost call and response. So my first note yes. on the copy of my speech is black oratorical traditions, plural. 
There's an S on the end. Interesting. And I think the reason I put the S on the end is because I'm very clear that there is more than one. And the way she spoke reminds me of how people, women, black women specifically, that I've heard black women speak over a lifetime, particularly in the context of my church, the black church, when I was growing up. And the reason I put it there is because when I was growing up in the 1950s and uh, early 1960s, there were very few places that both black men and black women could speak for any elongated period of time to say anything that had meaning because we were so much marginalized in the society as a whole. So I really resonate with how she speaks because it just sounds so familiar to me because I've heard that style all of my life. There are certain, I don't know what word to use, there's certain familiar and I would I would say narrow understandings of black rhetorical or oratorical traditions and of black culture in general. It makes me nuts. If there's anything, there are lots of things about being black in this country I find challenging, but one of the things I find most challenging is the boilerplate stereotyping of who we are and what it all means. And she is a part of a black oratorical tradition, even though she's not doing some of the things that Jesse Jackson or other people who are, say, Al Sharpton, for example, might do. There's a range of black oratorical traditions. So if you're looking at a timeline or zero to 100, where would she be on that timeline in terms of what we're going to hear in a few seconds now? of her speaking style. It brings you back to the black church, but is it if Jesse Jackson is at one end and Barack Obama is at the other end, where would you see her? She was born 10 years before I. She was born in 1936. I was born in 1946. There was more formality in American speech in general during the earlier years of the 20th century than there is now. We, I don't know if we have a rhetorical or an oratorical tradition now because we have people who tweet and who talk on cell phones while they're walking and they send out emails with every single word misspelled. So I'm not really sure what we have as far as both written written and spoken language at a time when I think all of that is really being debased. But because she came from the early part, was born in the earlier part of the 20th century, some of what we hear is just how people express themselves in general. If you watch movies from the 1930s and sometimes in the 1940s, white people talk very differently in movies than Indeed. anybody talks now, and I don't think white people talk that way on the street either. But it's like, what is that? It's like a little false or faux British accent. What's going on here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was this very, very elevated level of speech and pronunciation during those years. Written skills, writing skills, speaking skills were all valued in the first half of the 20th century, going you know past the 20th century or the mid 20th century mark. Nowadays, not so much. So <laughs> you hear people on television, and I I listen to them. And I say, Are you kidding me? How did you get that job? You don't even know how to pronounce so and so or so and so. And I was raised in a family where spoken communication as well as written and other kinds of literary skills were very highly valued. I have a twin sister, and I know you have a twin brother, yes. And one of the things that our family would tell us as we were growing up, you need to enunciate. What is that, a four-syllable word to tell us to speak clearly? They would also tell us to speak clearly, but they would say, girls, you need to enunciate. It was a value. So I can identify with what she does. 
We are talking with Barbara Smith, a professor, activist, member of the Albany Common Council. Okay, now that we've set the scene for Barbara Jordan's keynote address to the 1976 Democratic National Convention, it's time to listen. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for a very warm reception. It was 144 years ago that members of the Democratic Party first met in convention to select a presidential candidate. Since that time, Democrats have continued to convene once every four years and draft the party platform and nominate a presidential candidate. And our meeting this week is a continuation of that tradition. But there is something different about tonight. There is something special about tonight. What is different? What is special? I, Barbara Jordan, am a keynote speaker. A lot of years passed since 1832. And during that time, it would have been most unusual for any national political party to ask a Barbara Jordan to deliver a keynote address. But tonight, here I am. And I feel, I feel that notwithstanding the past, that my presence here is one additional bit of evidence that the American dream need not forever be deferred. Now, now that I have this grand distinction, what in the world am I supposed to say? I could easily spend this time praising the accomplishments of this party and attacking the Republicans, but I don't choose to do that. I could list the many problems which Americans have. I could list the problems which cause people to feel cynical, angry, frustrated. Problems which include lack of integrity in government, the feeling that the individual no longer counts, the reality of material and spiritual poverty, the feeling that the grand American experiment is failing or has failed. I could recite these problems and then I could sit down and offer no solutions. But I don't choose to do that either. The citizens of America expect more. They deserve and they want more than a recital of problems. We are a people in a quandary about the present. We are a people in search of our future. We are a people in search of a national community. We are a people trying not only to solve the problems of the present, unemployment, inflation, but we are attempting on a larger scale to fulfill the promise of America. We are attempting to fulfill our national purpose to create and sustain a society in which all of us are equal. Throughout, throughout our history, 
when people have looked for new ways to solve their problems and to uphold the principles of this nation, many times they have turned to political parties. They have often turned to the Democratic Party. What is it? What is it about the Democratic Party that makes it the instrument the people use when they search for ways to shape their future? Well, I believe the answer to that question lies in our concept of governing. Our concept of governing is derived from our view of people. It is a concept deeply rooted in a set of beliefs firmly etched in the national conscience of all of us. Now, what are these beliefs? First, we believe in equality for all and privileges for none. This is a belief. This is a belief that each American, regardless of background, has equal standing in the public forum, all of us. Because, because we believe this idea so firmly, we are an inclusive rather than an exclusive party. Let everybody come. I think it's no accident that most of those immigrating to America in the 19th century identified with the Democratic Party. We are a heterogeneous party made up of Americans of diverse backgrounds. We believe that the people are the source of all governmental power, that the authority of the people is to be extended, not restricted. be accomplished only by providing each citizen with every opportunity to participate in the management of the government. They must have that. We believe. We believe that the government which represents the authority of all the people, not just one interest group but all the people, has an obligation to actively, underscore actively, seek to remove those obstacles which would block individual achievement, obstacles emanating from race, sex, economic condition. The government must remove them, seek to remove them. We. We are a party. We are a party of innovation. We do not reject our traditions, but we are willing to adapt to changing circumstances. When change we must, we are willing to suffer the discomfort of change in order to achieve a better future. We have a positive vision of the future founded on the belief that the gap between the promise and reality of America can one day be finally closed. We believe that. This 
my friends, is the bedrock of our concept of governing. This is a part of the reason why Americans have turned to the Democratic Party. These are the foundations upon which a national community can be built. Let all understand that these guiding principles cannot be discarded for short-term political gains. They represent what this country is all about. They are indigenous to the American idea, and these are principles which are not negotiable. In other times, in other times, I could stand here and give this kind of exposition on the beliefs of the Democratic Party, and that would be enough. But today, that is not enough. People want more. That is not sufficient reason for the majority of the people of this country to decide to vote Democratic. We have made mistakes. We realize that. We admit our mistakes. In our haste to do all things for all people, we did not foresee the full consequences of our actions. And when the people raised their voices, we didn't hear, but our deafness was only a temporary condition and not an irreversible condition. Even as I stand here and admit that we have made mistakes, I still believe that as the people of America sit in judgment on each party, they will recognize that our mistakes were mistakes of the heart. They'll recognize that. And now, now we must look to the future. Let us heed the voice of the people and recognize their common sense. If we do not, we not only blaspheme our political heritage, we ignore the common ties that bind all Americans. Many fear the future, many are distrustful of their leaders and believe that their voices are never heard. Many seek only to satisfy their private work wants, to satisfy their private interests. But this is the great danger America faces, that we will cease to be one nation and become instead a collection of interest groups. City against suburb, region against region, individual against individual, each seeking to satisfy private wants. If that happens, who then will speak for America? Who then will speak for the common good this is the question which must be answered in 1976. Are we to be one people bound together by common spirit, sharing in a common endeavor, or will we become a divided nation? For all of its uncertainty, we cannot flee the future. We must not become the new Puritans 
and reject our society. We must address and master the future together. It can be done if we restore the belief that we share a sense of national community, that we share a common national endeavor. It can be done. There is no executive order, there is no law that can require the American people to form a national community. This we must do as individuals. And if we do it as individuals, there is no president of the United States who can veto that decision as a first step. As a first step, we must restore our belief in ourselves. We are a generous people, so why can't we be generous with each other? We need to take to heart the words spoken by Thomas Jefferson, let us restore the social intercourse let us restore to social intercourse that harmony and that affection without which liberty and even life are but dreary things. A nation is formed by the willingness of each of us to share in the responsibility for upholding the common good a government is invigorated when each one of us is willing to participate in shaping the future of this nation. In this election year, we must define the common good and begin again to shape a common future. Let each person do his or her part if one citizen is unwilling to participate, all of us are going to suffer. For the American idea, though it is shared by all of us, is realized in each one of us. And now, what are those of us who are elected public officials supposed to do? We call ourselves public servants. But I'll tell you this, we, as public servants, must set an example for the rest of the nation. It is hypocritical for the public official to admonish and exhort the people to uphold the common good if we are derelict in upholding the common good. More is required. More is required of public officials than slogans and handshakes and press releases. More is required. We must hold ourselves strictly accountable. We must provide the people with a vision of the future. If we promise as public officials, we must deliver. We, as public officials, propose, we must produce. If we say to the American people, it is time for you to be sacrificial, sacrifice,
If the public official says that, we must be the first to give. We must be. And again, if we make mistakes, we must be willing to admit them. We have to do that. to do is strike a balance between the idea that government should do everything and the idea, the belief, that government ought to do nothing. Strike a balance. Let there be no illusions about the difficulty of forming this kind of a national community. It's tough. Difficult, not easy, but a spirit of harmony will survive in America only if each of us remembers that we share a common destiny. If each of us remembers when self-interest and bitterness seem to prevail that we share a common destiny I have confidence that we can form this kind of national community. I have confidence that the Democratic Party can lead the way. I have that confidence. We cannot improve on the system of government handed down to us by the founders of the Republic. There is no way to improve upon that, but what we can do is to find new ways to implement that system and realize our destiny. Now, I began this speech by commenting to you on the uniqueness of a Barbara Jordan making a keynote address. Well, I am going to close my speech by quoting a Republican president. And I ask you that as you listen to these words of Abraham Lincoln, relate them to the concept of a national community in which every last one of us participates as I would not be a slave, so I would not be a master. This, this, this expresses my idea of democracy. Whatever differs from this, extent of the difference is no democracy. Thank you.
That was Barbara Jordan's keynote address for the 1976 Democratic National Convention delivered in New York City on July 12, 1976. I'm Alan Chartok. You're listening to The Power of Words, our series of programs that follows American history throughout some of the most memorable and inspiring political speeches of our times. On the program with us today is Professor Activist and Common Council member Barbara Smith. Barbara, Professor, I guess the first question I want to know is we've just listen to the speech. You're a professor. What grade would you give it? I would either give it a high A or an A+. plus. Really? Mm-hmm. And what was it that you found so inspiring? Well, we were talking before listening to it about how magnificent her speaking style was, but there's nothing like hearing the voice. One of the things that I didn't realize rereading the speech in preparation for today's show is the humor. You don't know where the humor lines are. You don't know where the applause lines are. You don't know where and when the audience is going to respond to something when you just read it yourself. I think she was holding them in the palm of her hands. There's a formalism to her speech pattern, as you mentioned. It comes out of the black churches. It comes out of the the history. Do you think that Americans listening to that speech were turned on or off by that? Well, I think we were talking about result or what impact did the speech have? One of the things we might say is that it got Jimmy Carter elected president. How do you figure that? Well, I'm just talking about the continuity or the sequence of events. I mean, it's obviously not causal. You know, there are many, many factors in his becoming president at that time. But we have to say that one of them, if it had been subtracted, that is her speech not having happened, who knows how many people might not have been drawn to that particular campaign. So Jimmy Carter was a peanut farmer. You know, he was a Southerner. It turns out he was one of the more progressive presidents in history. But obviously there had to be some tying together of the peanut farmer Democrat from the South and Barbara Jordan being chosen to do the speech. Are you talking about the fact that they're both from the South? No, I'm talking about the fact that they represented, in many people's minds, different constituencies. Right, and one of the things that this glosses over when she talks about the history of the Democratic Party, she doesn't say anything because she goes back to 1832 and talks about how immigrants to this country gravitated to the Democratic Party. Dixiecrats are not mentioned at all, and that's one of the things that I had in my notes so I wouldn't forget to include it in our conversation today. The history of the Democratic Party is not a pretty one because up until the Goldwater years, the 1960s, when there was a great reverse and swing that the Republicans became the party of the resistant and kind of entrenched South, Southern states, they had a Southern strategy. Before that, the Democratic Party was a party of the right-wing conservative still wedded to segregation members of uh, you know our political process. So as I said, she did, that part of the history of the Democratic Party is not mentioned. The fact that there was a strong racist contingent in the Democratic Party that had great sway. Is that what she meant when she kept saying uh, we, we've made our mistakes? Maybe. I think there's some other mistakes because this is a Watergate era. You can't listen to this speech and not think about Watergate. Which is probably what cost Ford the election because he pardoned Nixon. Right, right, exactly. But the thing is that the country was reeling from its biggest breach of the public trust that ever, ever occurred. The fact that Nixon was the only president to have been forced to resign. 
it was just phenomenal. And I actually lived in Washington, D.C. during the Watergate era, very briefly. But looking at the dates on these things and particularly looking at also her testimony before the Judiciary Committee, she was a member of the House of Representatives Judiciary Committee, it's just like, wow. But as I said, I was living in Washington in 1974. I was there the night that he told people that he was leaving. I was there the morning he got on that helicopter. So one of the reasons for choosing her, because I think this is terribly important in terms of the context, is that she was a voice on that Judiciary Committee. She was a leader. She was right up there in criticizing Nixon, which means that you choose somebody who will remind the American people of what was going on. Right. And her testimony there, her statements, I think there were much even more powerful than the speech because it was in real time. Here she's expressing ideas, values, concepts. There she was holding the entire U.S. government and the entire country accountable. And who was it that was doing that? It was a black woman who a few decades before in the case of being a woman and who about a century before in the case of being a black person was no part of the functioning political body. These were two identities that were completely excluded from the U.S. body politic, and yet who is it that's holding the U.S. government and this country accountable in absolutely incredible and unique way? A key line was equality for all, privileges for none. That had to scare the hell out of some people. Well, look where we are now. We mm-hmm. have greater inequality, income equality in this country than at any time right. since we started tracking that. It is just frightening. And we are living in a country now where the American dream is really, really very fragile. We're living in a country now where many, many children cannot expect to do better than their parents did. What happened? So, yeah, that may be a line that scared people, but apparently those who could make that privilege really be entrenched, got a hold of the reins. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm assuming, by the way, when somebody gives a State of the Union address that somebody who's organizing the event looks at it <laughs> before. So clearly they like that idea, but an awful lot of Americans see themselves as people who have privilege of one kind or another, including people who might live in a trailer thinking that they have privilege over what somebody else has. So it's a daring statement. Right, indeed. And I think our country, we don't necessarily understand privilege, and we also don't understand class fully, because most Americans, when asked, what is your class, they would say they were middle class, and that goes everywhere from working class and perhaps even working poor up to the highest reaches. I mean, what did uh, Romney say about what middle class was? I think it was like, what, $250,000 a year? So he was completely out of touch on that. So uh, civil rights. You mentioned in our earlier discussion before the speech that we were 10 years out from the, I think I heard, 10 years out from the apex of the civil rights movement. And here, a black woman is talking basically at a Democratic National Convention. Can you tie those up for us? Well, the reason I say that we were past the height of the civil rights movement, that's just historically accurate. When I went to college, I started college in 1965. I'd been very active in the civil rights movement, even though I lived in Cleveland in the North. We had a very vital civil rights struggle that teenagers like myself could be involved in because it focused on school desegregation. And that's where I kind of cut my political 
teeth. But by the time I got to college, and I went to Mount Holyoke in Massachusetts, in the woods of Massachusetts, but when I went to uh, college, the civil rights movement was definitely winding down, and the anti-Vietnam War movement was revving up. And I was, of course, involved in everything I could be involved in. But in 1972, that was the implementation phase, 1972 through 1976. The 1970s were the implementation phase of the civil rights struggle. And then we had someone named Ronald Reagan be elected in 1980, and in some ways it's been downhill ever since. But, you know, that's what I meant about where we were historically at the time that she gave that speech. We were in the implementation phase. Affirmative action was very much on the table. EEOC was on the table and was in existence. And also, like I lived in Boston in the 1970s, the Boston school busing struggle, that was a civil rights movement writ large implemented in a northern city. Boston Brahmins and you know, the ha- most highfalutin city probably in this country is Judge Boston. Judge the busing. Right, right, business. indeed. And it was like, what's the difference between here and way down in Mississippi? So if racism was alive and well, clearly, in 1976... And Barbara Smith and your professor, you study all of this. How would you compare where we are today with when Barbara Jordan was giving this speech? We've come a long way, obviously, because that young generation, we have the studies about them. People in their 20s, people in their 30s. I'm not sure what they're called. Are they millennials? But (laughs) in any event, that younger generation, they don't care. They don't care about racial identity. They don't care about religious affiliation, and they don't care about sexual orientation either. They think that those of us who are older are pretty idiotic because we actually do focus on those things. And with all the strides in particular that have been made around LGBT rights in recent years, including just this week, Minnesota passing gay marriage, we see that there are differences across the generations, but what it doesn't take into account is that there's some, like myself and Barbara Jordan, as we understand from historical research, who actually were a part also of that LGBT community and who were involved in making strides toward that level of acceptance even back then. So what did Barbara Jordan get out of this? Out of doing the speech? Yes. Well, I think because she had such a deep understanding of historical reality and where she fit in that picture as an African-American and as a woman, I think she had to be completely gratified by the fact that this country that she so deeply believed in, she was extremely idealistic about the American democratic project, much more idealistic than I, I might add. But I can understand where she's coming from. But the thing is, she was very idealistic about what those founders meant and intended, what those founding documents said, and the very fact that she was allowed in the room, so to speak. She said, you can't improve on what the founding fathers gave us. She, that, yeah, because that was a very interesting... It was. Uh, it really comment. is. Because I think we could have improved on it after all. You know, people of color were... were Three-fifths yeah. <laughs> of a human. Right, Women the, couldn't vote at all. Yeah, right. And so we know, if you read Beard and all the rest of them, we know that this was sort of landed aristocracy, which were making making the rules. White landed aristocracy. Why did she need to say that? I think that she was talking about the idea and the ideal because the flexibility of our system of government is what has allowed for those changes to occur without sinking the ship of state. Other places that go through major transformations as far as power, 
the acceptance of people of oppressed status and transforming that oppressed status to full participants in the society, it is often accomplished with great disruption of the body politic in general. And of course, we did have our civil war. The civil war was one of the shaping incidents or events of U.S. history, but the state stood. And I think that's what she meant. I don't think she was talking about there were no problems. She's quoting Thomas Jefferson, who held slaves. Most of the early presidents were slave owners. I mean, that's not perfect. But she was talking about the ideals. The ideals made it possible for all the positive changes that have happened subsequently, including the civil rights struggle, struggles, plural, women, people of color, LGBT people. Those are all civil rights struggles of a kind. The founding values and documents and structure made it possible for those things to occur. Well, Barbara Smith, it seems to me that there are always strategies in these speeches. And one of the strategies here was to call to the American people and say, you know, we have this commonality and we don't fool with our we don't fool with our accepted institutions because otherwise she's seen as a real dangerous lady. Uh, and so therefore, by invoking the Constitution, invoking the founding fathers, I think you really got something. Right. And that's a strategy that I use and have used. Is it? Yes. I mean, not necessarily so? invoking the founders and et cetera, but there's a way that you can talk about very difficult subjects if you talk about positives And also, if you talk about things that everyone can identify with. So, for example, when I talk about issues of race and racism on college and university campuses, I talk about how you have to challenge yourself to speak out against oppression. I said, but don't think I don't have to do that. I have to do that, you know. And I explain, I'm not a Latina. I'm not a person living with a major disability. You know, like I list all the things. I'm a person who got a superb education, so I'm not dealing with the problems and the lack of options that I would have if I hadn't got it. So don't assume that just because I'm in what seems like a great politically correct package that I don't have to do what I'm asking you to do. It's a disarming kind of strategy. And for her to assert her commitment to and her belief in the basic founding principles of this country She had a lot of people that she wouldn't have had if she said, it's all really messed up. We just went through Watergate. There's something really rotten here in the state of Denmark, America. Yeah. You are a professor, but you're also a practicing politician. You're you're on what we call our common council. You are anything but common. But do you owe anything to Barbara Jordan? Well, one of the things that I really love, and I'm so glad I had this opportunity to look back at her and at this speech and her career today, because... When these things were going on, and I'm talking and thinking about Shirley Chisholm as well, and of course Barbara Jordan, there's others too, I could never figure out why anybody would want to be involved in electoral politics. I admired these women, and that included women who are not African-American, like Patsy Mink, the first woman of color to serve in Congress, and I just happened to have co-edited a book with her daughter, so I got to find out so much more about all the great things that congressional member Patsy Mink did, but I admired them, but I didn't really get it, you know, because I wasn't involved. And of course, when you're involved in government, you're basically involved with reform. Well, can you owe something to somebody even though you may not be cognizant of them? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I was always cognizant of them, and I always looked up to them and admired them. I just didn't get why they would choose to take their great talents and put it into a context of working within a government. 
that I did not get. And sometimes I don't even know why I'm doing it, but I do know it was a really important thing for me during this period of my life. Why do you think you're doing it? Well, because I live in a neighborhood, namely Arbor Hill, that has... Which, for those of you who are listening to this anywhere outside of Albany, is it challenged? I think that's a good yes, way Yes, economically putting, challenged. Econo- economically predominantly challenged. poor black community. Right. So I live in a community that has a lot of needs. And the kinds of things that we did need and still need, particularly around public safety and crime and quality of life, they affected me. And that's really how I got involved. And yet, Barbara, you live in this challenge, economically challenged community. You are obviously capable of not living there if you wanted to. Don't assume, Alan. (laughs) I'm assuming. Um, And you think we've moved on. When I first asked you that question, where are we now compared to where we, you thought we had come a long way. And yet, if you live in that community, you realize that people have been oppressed, have been shoved down into poverty and are being basically ghettoized. Right. And that was a joke when I said, don't assume about whether I have a choice of living no, no. elsewhere, because I have always been an independent scholar, because I've always followed the work that most makes me happy. That means that I haven't really concentrated throughout my professional life and let me make sure I'm secure and make money and et cetera. So the thing is, I I often tell people, I live in Arbor Hill because that's where I can afford to live. It certainly was where I could afford to buy a house. But be that as it may, I do have choices because of my educational background that others do not have. I look at Arbor Hill and other neighborhoods like it, and and sadly we have neighborhoods like that all over this country. I look at these neighborhoods as being the manifestation, the 21st century legacy of slavery. That's what we're looking at. There's a direct line and continuum from the history of enslavement of people of African heritage in this country to the intractable poverty and other kinds of problems that we find in our inner city communities. Based on skin pigment, it's enough to drive you crazy. And social mm-hmm. and the social and political status that that visited upon one. I always explain to people, I'm not oppressed because of my color. I'm oppressed because of my race. Because there are people who are darker than I am from different parts of the world who do not have the same social status and same political status within this country or within their own countries. It's not about the visuals. It's about what is your political status that is embedded in historical reality. Well, we've heard the speech. We have heard from a a wonderful and insightful person, Barbara Smith professor, activist, political office holder. And Barbara, I just can't thank you enough for spending all of this time with us. I know how busy you are. Well, thank you, Ellen, and thanks to WAMC for having this kind of programming. And be sure to join us next time for another discussion about a great political speech on the power of words.